If you weren't here at the first service, do try to find time to go online and listen to the message because that was part one and this is part two. Uh, this morning we looked at the first time at this text the first time in order to see the baptizer and the kingdom and this time I want to look at it and see the baptizer and repentance one of the best ways to tell a story is to start at the beginning it just makes sense the beginning of John the Baptist's story goes further back much further back than our text by itself allows. So all of y'all who have found Matthew chapter 3, put a bookmark there and go to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. I want to tell you a little bit about the prophet Isaiah. You're free to look at Isaiah 40 with me or just listen as I read it for you in a moment. But try to stick with me because this is going to connect pretty clearly, I think. Over 700 years before John the Baptist's life and ministry, Isaiah was the prophet of God who was given an unusual calling. He writes this massive Old Testament book that is 66 chapters long. In many ways, Isaiah's book parallels the entire Bible and its 66 books. The first 39 books of the Bible, the Old Testament, outline the problem of our sin and our need for salvation. And the final 27 books, the New Testament, reveal the coming of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here we are this morning. Our text is actually from Matthew, the 40th book, right? The beginning of that story of Christ's coming. Similarly, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, God's message through the prophet was to convict the people of their sin, to warn them about judgment and the wrath of God that they face. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah's book are stark. They are worrisome. They are alarming words. But then, starting at chapter 40, it's almost like the voice changes. There is this shift after Isaiah's 39th chapter that is as dramatic as the shift between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Going from the warning of God's wrath to the promise of salvation. So listen, after 39 chapters of condemnations and warnings, Isaiah chapter 40 opens with the word comfort. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. For every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken this. Now I want you to know this, I want you to hear this, because in our text, when John the Baptist comes, this is what he's claiming. When the, when the religious leaders come out to see John the Baptist in the countryside and to confront him and to even ask just who is it that you think you are, 
He quotes Isaiah chapter 40, that turning point in prophetic history that contains the promise and the command to prepare the roadway for the coming of Yahweh God himself. God's glory is going to be revealed. And John says, look, I'm just the voice in the wilderness calling out to prepare the way for God. Isaiah describes that as the, he, he describes that preparation as uh, exalting the valleys, literally lifting up the valleys, lowering the hills and the mountains, making the crooked ways into straight paths and the rough places smooth. When he talks about preparing a way, a highway for God, he uses language that's almost, it's literally the language of building a road. And yet John's not out there in the wilderness in an orange reflective vest and a construction hat giving directions to to heavy equipment. He's out there saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John's proclamation of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand is in fact preparing the roadway for the arrival of the glorious God himself by repentance a change of mind that results in a change of the way you think about sin and the way you behave in regard to sin john is it is this to say that the king is coming but until you people you flatten out the peaks and valleys of your life until you reject your crooked ways and make those things straight you are not prepared for his coming You all say that you want the promised Messiah King to come, but why would he come to sinful hearts like yours? He's going to find that as revolting as you find pothole-filled highways in Illinois. Something has got to dramatically change for the coming of the Lord. Now let's read our text. (laughs) Matthew chapter 3, starting at verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region round about Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now, the axe is laid to the roots of the trees. Therefore, every, good, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. 
He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. When John the Baptist issues this command to repent, we need to have a clear understanding of what that means. The simplest definition of repent is to change your mind. In the original language, it carries the idea of changing your mind due to remorse or regret over your former thinking or over your former behavior. So this change of mind, it it isn't just changing your mind like, you know, I think I'll wear that other shirt today or I I would rather have the chicken nuggets instead of the hamburger for lunch. Repentance is always changing your mind in regard to something of Deep consequence, it is changing your mind because you regret with genuine remorse your former position. For John the Baptist, repentance is to change your mind specifically in regard to sin. To be prepared for this coming of the Lord of glory, the people need to dramatically change their minds about sin. The the conviction of sin it's not just recognizing, oh, you know, I, I guess I've broken some rule that I really don't care about. It is having a deep and sorrowful regret at offending God. That you look at your life and you see the, the lust and the hate and the selfishness and the arrogance and the anger and the rebellion and the list goes on and on. Make the list of sin in your own life. It is to look at those things and when you see your sin and yourself the way that God sees them, you deeply regret what it is that you see. Because of this, repentance is often equated with sorrow or sadness. Your change of mind has come about sin because you are deeply sorry for what it is that you've done. You change your heart about sin because you have this profound remorse about it. The Apostle Paul says in uh, 2 Corinthians 7.10 that godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. And so repentance is to have a change of mind about sin. It is accompanied by a a, a change of feeling, right? A, a feeling of sorrow over sin. And even further, it gets displayed in a change of behavior in regard to sin. We'll see in a moment in verse 8 that repentance, repentance bears fruit, John says. So while repentance is internal in regard to your thinking and feeling about sin, it can be seen externally in how you behave. In Luke's gospel, Luke records this same conversation that John the Baptist has with the religious leaders. But when Luke's done recording that, he actually goes on and records some of the interaction that John the Baptist has as all sorts of people come to him and ask him, like, essentially, what does repentance look like for me? Like, I feel repentance, so how, how is it that I put that into practice? 
Listen to this interaction from Luke 3, verses 10 through 14. So the people asked him, saying, what shall we do then? And he answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. And the tax collectors came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers came to him asking, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. So whether their sin was selfishness or greed or violence, John's command to repent was not simply, I just want you to feel differently about it. It was also, you need to behave differently about it. To repent is to have a change of mind in regard to sin, which leads to a change of behavior in regard to sin, and it leads to embracing the promises of God that your sin will be forgiven through Messiah King Jesus. John's message would have been completely void of any good news. It would have been incomplete if, it had, if he had just said, you know, you guys should feel bad. Why don't you straighten yourselves up so you act better and then God's going to love you? Listen, there is no good news in that. There is no gospel in that. John's message was to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His message was that God himself was inaugurating the day of salvation and you can be part of his kingdom, right? And down in verse 11, you know that this is a Christ-centered message because John says down in verse 11 so clearly, look, this is not about me. I am just a voice. Let me tell you about the one who's coming after me, the one who's greater. I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. The Apostle Paul actually summarizes John the Baptist's message in Acts chapter 19, verse 4, by saying this, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who comes after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. John's message was you can be ready for the kingdom of heaven by repenting of your sin and believing in God's promise in Messiah King Jesus. And so, get this. There is the view today that some folks have of the Old Testament that, well, the Old Testament saints were, were saved through keeping the law of God. Listen, if anyone was ever saved by law-keeping, it would be exactly the kind of folks that John the Baptist is speaking to. And yet God, who had been silent for 400 years, sends John the Baptist to break that silence with the word, repent. Repentance is what you need. Repentance is that change of mind as you grieve, you mourn over your sinful life. Repentance is that change of behavior as you alter the sinful motives of your life. Repentance is that godly sorrow that leads you to faith in and salvation through Jesus Christ. And repentance is such a radical change, such a, a moment of difference in the people of God's lives 
that they see themselves as something entirely different, something entirely new. Listen, these people who heard John's message and obeyed God's call to repent, they submitted to John's baptism. And y'all, I do not want to overlook the radical change that represents. Verses 5 and 6 says, Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Listen, with the exception of John's title in verse 1, that he is John the Baptist, verse 6 is the first time we get baptism mentioned in Scripture. Baptism is not an Old Testament concept. It's not something that we see happening back there. The closest we have in the Old Testament is maybe the the priests who had to cleanse themselves, but they were just washing their hands and their feet. It was a long way from being totally immersed, which is what baptism is. That's what the word means. The, The next closest we see in the Old Testament might be Naaman the Syrian who had been struck with leprosy and he was told by the prophet to go to the river and dip himself underneath in order to be cleansed. But that's not really baptism the way John's describing it. The source of baptism is not found in the Old Testament. It is perhaps found in the practice of the Jewish people which developed in that 400 years of silence before the New Testament opens. The only time the Jewish people practiced some one-time ritual washing by immersion was on the very rare occasion that a Gentile would want to become a proselyte. That is, a Gentile wanted to declare themselves, I'm now a Jewish person who follows the one true God, Yahweh. And that ritual washing that they make that Gentile do in order to declare themselves Jewish was essentially making a statement that, look, I'm an outsider, but I want to be part of the people of Yahweh, the one true God. And so I am making this statement that I was unacceptable to God. As I was, I know that I needed to be cleansed. There is a fundamental change that has to take place in order for for God to embrace me. For John then to come and demand repentance and baptism was to tell these Jewish people that what you are is unacceptable to God as you are. You need to change your mind about sin. You need to change your behavior about sin. You need to trust in the salvation of the coming Messiah King. You have to admit that as you are, you are not one of the people of God. You're unacceptable to Him. Simply being Jewish is not enough to satisfy God. Y'all, this is a stunning admission that the Jewish people would come to John and essentially declare themselves in need of baptism as if they were Gentiles. They came because they experienced 
genuine repentance, this change of mind about sin that says at the end of verse 6, the only reason they did it was because they came confessing their sins. Yes, I am no better than a Gentile. I do need to be cleansed. I have to be changed to be ready for God's kingdom. Nothing else would cause them to do that except a dramatic change of mind and change of heart, a real, genuine repentance. For John, such repentance was a necessary prerequisite for baptism. John is known as John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, but to reduce him to that name makes it sound like that was all he was interested in. But if that was the case, then anybody who had come to John asking to be baptized, he would have gladly accepted them, right? Fishermen, sure. Tax collectors, come on in. The water's warm. Soldiers, absolutely. Hop on in. I welcome everybody. But what do we actually find is the case in verse 7? When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Now it's interesting that the Pharisees and Sadducees get lumped together here since they were hardly in agreement with each other about anything. The The Sadducees were the priestly class in Jerusalem who had mostly the control of the temple and the Sanhedrin council. Religiously speaking, they were liberal. They rejected most of the Old Testament and they cooperated with the Roman occupiers. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were the law keepers who were out there spread throughout the nation. In every city, they were in control of the local synagogue. They were rigid religious conservatives, and they were hostile to the Roman occupiers. These two groups hated each other. There is very little these groups have in common except their dislike of each other and their dislike of all things Christian. Most likely what's happened at this point in time is that both groups have heard about this new religious movement out in the wilderness and, and the word's buzzing and so they want to jump on board and claim it for themselves, right? This, this, is, this is of us so that we can use it as a tool against our enemies. John sees both of these groups arrive at the River Jordan and instead of choosing sides between them, he makes no distinction between them. And you realize if John's interest was in creating a popular religious movement, right? If John was interested in making a name for himself, here's his chance to do it. He's just got to choose which side he wants to be on and he can make them do what he wants. Like, yeah, fellas, step right in. Glad to have you as part of the movement. But John's only interest is in preparing the way for the coming Lord Jesus, not making a name for himself. So when they ask, who are you? He responds, I'm I'm a voice. I'm nothing but a voice. I am preparing the way for the Lord. And down in verse 11, it's, yeah, I'm baptizing. But let me tell you about the one who's greater than me. The one who's coming. And so he doesn't win any popularity contest here. 
with the religious establishment when he points up at the riverbank and calls them, you brood of vipers. Or quite literally, you sons of snakes. I mean, who does that? <laughs> this, is, this is not a, a common insult. What John's talking about is back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. After the fall, after Satan had come to Eve in the form of a serpent in order to mislead and tempt her. In Genesis 3.15, God gave the first promise of Jesus by saying, the seed of the woman would come and crush Satan. He's going to put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of that serpent. And now Messiah King Jesus has come born of a virgin. He is the seed of the woman and he has come to crush Satan. And John's looking at the religious leaders and identifying them as the exact sons of snakes that are going to get crushed in the process. Now just so there's no mistake here, it could not be more clear that you do not enter into the kingdom of heaven through the act of baptism. If John thought that his baptism actually affected any kind of eternal change in a person, he would have willingly baptized everybody who came to him. But John insists that change has to happen before you are a candidate for baptism. And while he can't see inside the Pharisees and Sadducees to know whether or not they've had a change of heart and mind about sin, he can certainly see on the outside that there was no change of behavior about sin. Right? He tells them in verse 8, bear fruit worthy of repentance. Or in other words, show some change in behavior that correlates with any kind of true repentance that's happened inside of you. Everyone else coming to be baptized was coming as a way of showing that real repentance and renouncing their old selves. But all these religious leaders are doing is still trusting in their old selves. They think that they are part of the kingdom of God by birthright. I was born into this. And John's proclaiming you're only part of the kingdom of God through repentance and faith. He does not even give them a chance to make their argument. He says to them in verse 9, don't even think about saying that you have Abraham for your father. Their problem is that not only do they think being descendants of Abraham meant that they have a privileged position as God's chosen people, regardless of what they were in their hearts, they also thought because they're the children of Abraham, God needed them. I mean, after all, God made promises to Abraham. How else is God going to fulfill his promise to Abraham unless he does it through us? Listen, John's not having it. He tells them being Abraham's descendant does not assure them God's favor. And furthermore, God does not need them. Listen to me this morning. You need God. He does not need you. Praise the Lord. It's his good pleasure to use us. But John tells these religious leaders, God could use some rocks to fulfill his promise to Abraham if that's what he wants to do. He does not have to have you. And he will not accept you 
as you are. Now, let me address my Presbyterian friends for just a moment. I know they're not here. There are actually a couple of Presbyterians I'm partial to. Part of their argument for baptizing infants, and I, I use the little bunny foo-foo air quotes because they're not immersing infants, which is what baptism is, but part of their argument for baptizing infants is that they say it expresses their confidence that the children of believers are part of the covenant family of God. Try to tell that to John the Baptist here. John the Baptist says, you can put all your genealogical credentials back in your wallet. I don't care if you have an official laminated child of Abraham membership card. It does not matter who your daddy is. You don't qualify for baptism because you were born into some special family, nor does the act of baptism make you part of God's family. Baptism is a proclamation that there has been a dramatic turning point in your life in which you have repented of sin, you've changed your mind, and it has led you to a change of behavior, and you have experienced that godly sorrow that leads to repentance and faith in Messiah King Jesus. And y'all, some of you here today, you're not Jewish, you're not Presbyterian, but you're still thinking this way. You're thinking that somehow your family history counts for something. Well, I grew up in church. Mom and dad are Christian. I've been baptized. That makes me right in God's eyes. My friends, I say this out of love and yet as directly as possible. Unless you repent of your sin and trust Jesus Christ for salvation, you are doomed to the eternal torment under the wrath of God. And how dare I say such a thing? Well, listen to verses 10 through 12. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Again, in verse 11, you see the, the greatness of the coming Messiah King Jesus. John says, he's, he's, he's mightier than me. I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. I can baptize you with water in relation to your repentance, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This is fulfilled on the day of Pentecost when Jesus does baptize his assembly in the Holy Spirit. Later on in the Gospels, Jesus affirms that John the Baptist is the greatest of men. He is the greatest of prophets, Jesus says. But even the greatest of prophets, John, knows that this coming King Jesus is going to do infinitely more. This coming King Jesus is infinitely greater. And I said earlier today that the message of John is simply repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And everything else from verse 3 to verse 12 is just explaining and expounding that message. What we find then is the command to repent and the promise that the kingdom of heaven is close 
is both infinitely good news and infinitely bad news. It is gospel. It is great news for those who repent and change their mind in regard to sin and look to Jesus in faith. But it is unbearably bad news for everyone else. If you think, I don't believe that, I'm good enough like I am, I'm from the right family, John says the kingdom of heaven being at hand is not good news for you. If that's your thinking, it's not good news for you. And he gives two pictures of the bad news. In verse 10, he says the axe is already laid to the root of the trees. Picture a, <coughs> let's say picture a farmer that's got an apple orchard. When he visits that orchard and he sees there's many trees producing beautiful, juicy apples, but then there's this tree that has all the same advantages and yet it produces nothing at all. When the farmer takes his axe and lays it against the trunk of that tree, it is facing a grim future when he returns and picks up that axe. It will be, in John's words, cut down and thrown into the fire. That is a picture of eternal burning torment. In verse 12, the other picture, he describes Messiah King Jesus and says the winnowing fan is in his hand. The ancient practice at harvest time was to bring the grain to a place called the threshing floor. And it would be a, a windy place, usually on a hilltop. And it would be stomped and crushed and, and broken so that the good grain would separate from the dry husk. And then the farmer would take a winnowing fan or shovel or fork and stick it into the grain and throw it into the air and the good grain would fall back to the ground and the useless chaff would be blown to the side by the wind. John says Jesus is doing that. He's got his winnowing fork. He's going to, John says, thoroughly clean his threshing floor. In other words, nobody's going to be missed. You are either good grain to be collected and, and held in store with Messiah King Jesus, or you're the chaff that's going to be collected and burned with, John says, unquenchable fire. And this is why, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In both of those examples, the Lord knows the good and the bad. He knows the righteous and the wicked. He knows what's his and what's not. He knows those who are fruitful and those who are firebound. And so what will you make of John's message today? Because you realize, I, I know you know this, that anybody who stands today with any kind of zeal like John the Baptist had, someone who is willing to lead a dramatically countercultural life, someone who is, who is willing to speak clearly about sin and judgment, they are entirely dismissed. That is just a bunch of religious kookery. We won't have any of it. Now, what we want is we want a, a therapeutic message from God that reassures us we're great just the way we are. When did God ever send a message to humanity to tell them that they're great just the way they are? We're not fine. 
John's message in that day is not fundamentally different than the message of God to people today. Messiah, King Jesus has come, but unlike every other king in history who demanded their people would, would die on their behalf to advance their kingdom, Messiah, King Jesus has come and died on behalf of his subjects to create a kingdom. He endured the wrath of God on the cross. He he rose again, promising everlasting life. He is coming soon to establish a righteous kingdom on earth. And so the message today is repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is coming and he's not coming on your time frame. He doesn't need your invitation. You either repent of your sins and trust in him or embrace the fact that when he comes, he will endure no rebels in his kingdom. And so John preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I'm picking up that task and I'm telling you, the king is coming, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is a simple but enduring message. And it is a message that the Lord Jesus would have go out in preparation for him. In fact, you can look over at chapter 4 if you want to and you will see that the time comes when John is arrested, we find that the messenger is restrained, but the message cannot be restrained because in chapter 4, verse 13, after John's arrest, it says Jesus came down from Galilee and from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the message for us today. 